very welcome along to this cybersecurity edition of the SESI Staff Room. We're going to be talking about zero trust, awareness, one-to-one -one laptop deployments, all of that and more with our very special guest. Talk to you in a minute. You're very welcome along to another edition of the Staff Room. Um, as you well know at this stage, the Staff Room aims to be a half-hour program in or around half hour. We haven't quite hit the half hour yet. We've been more than it. We've been less than it. Uh, we've been a lot more than a half hour in the last one, so uh, apologies. Um, but today we have a special edition of the Staff Room. We have a special guest with us, and I um, we got this guest courtesy of our very own uh, John Heffernan. We were talking about cybersecurity and what happened in the HSC, and John Heffernan said, I have the person just to talk to you about it. Because it's very hard at the moment for us in schools to to put to join the dots. So cybersecurity, we know that the internet is bad. How do we protect our students? Are they safe in our school? How do we make them safer if that's if that's if that's a thing? So joining us now is Vince Scheibert. Vince, you're very welcome to the staff room. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you. Uh, Vince, I'm going to read your just the Twitter bio because I think that that really, according to John now, that sums you up. So promoter of EDU needs in a cybersecurity world, dad, Philly sports enthusiast, an avid sport fisherman. Now, I don't know what an avid sport fisherman is, so we're going to move on. <laughs> on <that one. laughs> there you go. Um, so EDU needs in a cybersecurity world. Vince, your journey so far without going, leaving college did. So what got you to this point here, other than John going, here, I have some guy you can talk to in Ireland. There you go. Awesome. Yeah. So it, it's kind of been an interesting journey. So uh, I originally started as a, as a school teacher uh, after a little bit of time in a classroom, transitioned out uh, to where I started to work in the tech field in around technology integration. After uh, that was early 2000s and then quickly escalated into um, leadership roles. Uh, for the last probably 15, almost 19 years, I have been either a CIO or a CTO of medium-sized to large school divisions in, in the States. So, and that both encompasses uh, in Virginia, the state of Virginia, as well as in the state of Pennsylvania to where uh, most school systems were around 10,000 students, up to about 86,000 students was the last size. In that time, uh, I transitioned from, uh, from my education background into and with a company that provides and promotes cybersecurity software. Uh, and we have been doing that here at Telos uh, for the Department of Defense in the United States, as well as a series of intelligence agencies. And my role today is to be able to help to take those tools and those resources and translate them and make them available for school divisions to help to keep them safe and secure as we kind of navigate this new digital space that we're, that we're all living in. So over here at the moment, the big talk is uh, we had a HSC ransomware attack. Um, and I, I, I was joking offline, but somebody opened the email. Like it wasn't somebody opened the email and it, it spread. And it turns out the background is they were on 
in situ in the system for a good number of uh, weeks or months, and then they shut the system down, ransomware went up, and miraculously or magically, an encryption key arrived two weeks later, or a week later, should I say. But the hacker said, we're still gonna, we're gonna release your content anyway, even though we've given you the, 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 the encryption key. Now, how, how do we stop that happen? First of all, like, a ransomware attack isn't as dramatic as as it sounds. Like there's a big, ooh, the hackers are out to get us, but it's not as dramatic as the movies make it, is it? it, it it's, it's generally not a very sophisticated attack. Um, it is generally one to which, uh, like, like we were joking about earlier, it's that proverbial email from the Nigerian prince offering you $10 million. Uh, again, it generally starts with a, it, it really preys on the vulnerability and, um, and desire that we as people have to answer questions and information. So it's gonna ask you to do something. And if you don't recognize that it's coming from a nefarious location, uh, you're actually going to be the one, whoever the recipient is that clicks that, that link, downloads that fake PO, uh, downloads that fake transcript, uh, you are, that person is actually the one technically initiating the attack. Um, but yeah, it, it's not like these guys are sitting in deep bunkers thinking about how they're going to hack in through a, a school division firewall. Um, I will say over here in the States, we have had a series of what we see are our public institutions are one of the largest targeted groups. Um, and again, we just had an oil pipeline just earlier, probably mm. about a month earlier than, than your incident in Ireland. Um, and again, it, it, was, it was enacted in the same fashion. Uh, but before that, we had a, one of our largest school systems in the state of Florida suffered the same cyber uh, ransomware attack by the same group that perpetrated the, the attack in Ireland. Um, it's, it's tough because it's big business. Uh, I think it's estimated that that group made nearly $90 million in in less than six months. So um, question is, how do we stop it, right? Like, how do we get our handle around it? The, the most important thing is just so overall awareness. What best way do we protect ourselves against these attacks? The most important piece is understanding and internalizing that this can happen to you. And it is happening to you. You, you may or may not necessarily realize it. Uh, because like what you, you mentioned before, whoever had accepted that or clicked that link won't remember it because it happened probably a month, two months earlier. So the, the first piece is really that awareness. Can this happen to me? And the answer is absolutely. It's happening to you multiple times a day. Now, luckily, we have a lot of technologies that are in place that are filtering many of the uh, bad phishing attempts. But in reality, it, it's a pretty big business. So people get pretty good at it. 
and getting to fool you and getting to fool the systems. So being aware of who's sending you what and where is, is important. So like when, when I was growing up, there was a whole campaign around how much information you would give somebody over the phone. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't give your name out. You don't tell somebody your phone number. Like all of those kinds of informational pieces to help people be smarter. Um, we have to do that now. And whether we're going to do that through regulation, meaning are we going to have standardized kind of trainings that people have to go through and have to have some kind of level of proficiency on an annual basis? Um, I think we're at a point now to where we have to do that. Um, We're going to have to take greater steps to enforce the idea that these things are happening and they're happening because of actions that we take. And we have the ability to stop that. You mentioned the awareness and the training. So we teachers, as a technician myself, um, school leaders, we need to go away and we need to be aware, get trained up, best practices. It, it's really very straightforward. But how do you deal with the student then that comes into school and goes, oh, because there's always one. <laughs> and to be fair, I'm not putting other students. I was that one at school. Like, I just wonder, the temptation is, is just too much. And, and people over here will, will know this reference. And I, if you don't know it, I'll send it to you. There's a, a Father Ted reference, and they're in the cockpit. And there's a big red button. And the button says, do not touch. And one of the priests <laughs> is like, oh, I can't, but I must touch. And that's pretty much what the students are like. Or not an awful lot of them as they go click oops gone how do we attach importance to it as far as the students are concerned so um that's a great question and also leads into an issue that students are generally in 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 educational environments students are their primary initial target and students are the primary initial target because they are more susceptible to falling for an incident, but also they know that students don't follow their email or aren't as attuned to what's in their email box as an adult. Three, it gives the it gives the person the, the 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 bad actor access now to your internal network. So what we have found through research is that is a primary entry point because now once I have that student's account, even though I don't have privileged information available, um, I now have the ability to operate as an internal person. So that student is now has the ability to start spamming out information and get other people who may think, oh, that's coming from an internal student. I can click that button. So circling back to knowing that students are huge targets to be able to give a, to open that door initially. So it's like vampires, right? Mm. Vampires can't come in your house unless you invite them. So we're by that st- staff or student clicking that button, we have now invited that person in. Uh, having more comprehensive conversations with kids. Um, having, making sure that we have set up and have done the due diligence in our 
uh, in our Google environments, in our Microsoft environments, and having the same stringent requirements on students as we do staff. What I have seen previously is organizations will set security parameters for staff and set different ones for kids. And when you do that, <laughs> you, you've made it easier to just target one group than the other. Um, okay. So making sure that we have the same security restraints on, on both uh, is, is ridiculously important. Uh, and then having those conversations with kids. So when I was growing up here in the States, there was McGruff the crime dog. Oh, yeah. And, and McGruff told you to look both ways when you cross the street. Don't take candy from strangers. And, and even as an adult, a nearly 50-year-old guy, like I remember that, you, you know, my man McGruff helping me out. So I think we need to kidify what it is we need to have done. And, and most of the security stuff that's out there um, is kind of boring and dull. So I think we need, we need something good for kids to be able to latch on, like that Cyber McGruff dog, to help kids understand and internalize this can happen yeah. and what do I need to be safe? Um, yeah, I, I think I think that's all well and good. I think I think we're it's an uphill struggle. It doesn't make it an impossible struggle. It, it is definitely an uphill struggle. One of the questions I, I'm always asked is, how do you make sure you're moving on to content? So, and I don't want to get too deep into the the, the geeky side of it. But so your your vampire is in, your bad actor is in. Your bad actor is now acting like. Uh, Hassan and I'm sending staff email and I've seen this like I've seen conversations and uh, of course no names will be mentioned but I was the principal showed me um, a conversation between uh, himself and a bad actor but the bad actor was acting as the accounts department so it was dear first name uh, doing a thing about a thing can you send me the account? No, it was very nonsense, nonsense. Oh, by the way, can you send me the account number? And oh, do you know what? I'm away from my whatever. Can you send me? And it wasn't until it was by luck the bandwidth went down or the phone, something happened, but the principal rang up the accounts person and just went, yeah, I have those details for you. And the accounts person was going, I, not me. So how do you protect your data? Like in that scenario, I feel for the principal because they didn't know and they did everything right. And only that luck would have it, they made that phone call. How do we protect ourselves and protect our, what's valuable to us on our network? And that can be student files, student details, or pictures of the family. Yep, so uh, that, so we talk a lot about um, the difference between management and technology controls. And what we have found is there is a general lack of process. Uh, one of the email phishing attacks that was really popular for a while was, and, and I don't know how, how much it took off over there, but it was essentially uh, a spearing attack to where the bad actor would act as a principal or superintendent of schools, sending an email out to everybody asking them to send uh, 
to go get gift cards and, and send them. So the question is, how do you stop something like that? And again, you're dealing more with a social engineering attack than you are a technical attack. Yes, yes. So when you're dealing with social engineering attacks, it has to be internal processes that we have the ability to combat with that. So uh, multiple ways, multiple methods of, an, of authentication. So in, in your case in point, you, you know, you get the email with the request, but you need to follow it up with a voice verification. Um, inside of email, if, if somebody's going to show that they're having difficulty managing their username and password uh, appropriately, uh, maybe it's time to roll them into a multi-factor authentication mm -hmm. to where they have two different factors. What we do know is multi-factor authentication reduces the likelihood by like 70 to 80% in terms of your ability to, to be susceptible because, again, there's a personal uh, element to it that can only be replicated by that individual. So from a technical standpoint, multi-factor authentication is, is one big, huge check mark that you could do or implement. Even if you don't want to implement it for everybody, you may implement it for your serial offenders. Mm. Uh, but the other piece is making sure that you combat social engineering by having good solid business practices for vulnerable items. Things that have high financial information, things that have high uh, personnel information. You want multiple references or multiple checks in order to verify that, yeah, we're not gonna pay. Uh, a similar attack happened here in the States, even in Virginia, to where they had just put in a new turf field and a company, a, a third party, a hacker emailed asking for the banking information to finalize payment for the mm -hmm. turf field. Right. So the, the, the accountant that got the email just turned around and gave the bank in banking information to, to that person and that school division lost $600,000. So, Again, it could have been handled by a multiple step process or a multiple verification process to, to combat that social piece. And on the technology piece, again, one of the biggest, easiest check marks to do is just multi-factor authentication or, or two-factor authentication. The fear at the moment and is that I'm a school and I, ha I do have this fear every now and then. I'm a school, I back up my data or I make sure there's an automatic backup and it, it goes to a place in a thing and a, above in a cloud. That backup is still vulnerable. And that, that's, that's a worry. Is, is there a way that we can solidify our backups? Is there backup solutions? Do you know of what, what's being done stateside? Sure. So um, I love the fact that you brought up the cloud. Uh, so whether you're talking Google, you're talking Microsoft Azure, you're talking AWS, please know that the cloud has multiple layers of security that you most likely your on-premise backups won't have. So um, know that there is security in the cloud. That, that's one big thing to okay. be able to, 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 to put out there. 
um, you're more secure having your data in the cloud than, than not. But to your point, if you back up the virus, then you've only backed up the virus. Hmm. So having the ability to have deep scanning on your, on your devices. And um, we follow the idea of uh, how, do you, how do you identify, how do you detect, and how do you recover? So knowing what steps you need to take in the event of a cyber incident is huge because what you don't want to do is, as you mentioned earlier with the, the, the breach that happened there, um, the information or the payload of that virus had already been implanted. It was already on the devices. So anybody that would restore that device back did so and restored the virus because it was already there. Um, and typically that's what they're trying to figure out is what your, what your backup cycles are. So that way they know that they are firmly okay. cached inside of, your, inside of your system. So once you've, once you've detected that you have an incident, the most important thing you can do is be able to go in and identify and cleanse your backup to ensure. And again, there's a series of products that, that do that or services um, that'll help with that recovery process. But you want to do that before you restore. Because the okay. last thing you want to do is start the process You're stuck all, in the loop, all over again that you've just restored the virus after, after taking it off. Um, and I, 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 hope, I hope we haven't lost too many, too many people just just going down that rabbit hole but i feel i just feel it has to be it has to be spoken about i think there has to be if not awareness and plain an, an exact message but if this happens this is what we do and we we can no longer think we could well, but we can't anymore we can no longer think that's not going to happen to us now, and, uh, and the worst fear that we have, uh, the worst fear I have over here is people are seeing insurance or ransomware insurance as the method to combat ransomware. Um, and and that's, that's like saying just because I have car insurance, I don't have to steer the wheel. That's the idea, that, that's a thing. So they uh, probably about two years ago, they started to sell ransomware insurance as part of your overall indemnity, uh, at least here in the States, they would sell that. But I can tell you in the state of Virginia, we have had six school divisions. So we have 135 school divisions uh, in, in, the, in Virginia. Six of them have been hacked multiple times and had multiple ransomware attempts, attacks on them. Mm. So right now we have a series of school divisions to where the insurance company is saying, we're not going to pay for your remediation. Okay. You can't prove that you've done the things to stop it. Um, insurance companies make a lot of money by not paying, paying yeah. out by just collecting, <laughs> by collecting our fees and then never having to pay out. Uh, so the idea that they're paying out and losing money, they're now starting to, to push back a lot. Um, and can you like, without, Without going too much into it, from an insurance standpoint, so I, I, I take out my insurance, my ransom manager. Does my, when I ring up and I go, hey, 
I've just, I don't know why, it sounded like Joey, but it's like, hey, I've just been attacked, um, ransomware on the system. What, the, what does the insurance company pay for it? The ransom or the fixing of the problem? So inside of that, they'll pay for the remediation services. Okay. So they'll, they'll, they'll call a company. So if, if in the event that that happened, just like if somebody, uh, like if your house called, uh, your, one of your schools called on fire, you would call the insurance company and you'd say, hey, listen, the school called on fire and they would send out the people to evaluate. Well, they do the same thing with cyber. So you would call them, say, hey, look, we, we got hit with a ransomware attack. Uh, our, our student information system is now, now locked up and fully encrypted. So then they initiate the services team or the cyber response team that's going to come out and assess and evaluate that and determine path to restore. Um, but we've had a series of school divisions here in the States that have been, that have been out of school for a week, on, a week or two weeks on end because they couldn't restore services fast enough. So now kids are out of school for, I mean, kids love it, right? It's kind of like a digital snow day. Um, I like that. But but (laughs) kids may like it too. The the chief information officers don't like it. Yeah, of course. Um, Look, I, I I think our overall point here is be aware, do the training. Uh, be aware that this is out there um, and protect yourself as best you can. Um, assume the worst and hope for the best, kind of. But don't, don't, don't click on random stuff. In a nutshell, yeah, don't. So there's there's a big buzz term right now in the in the cyberspace called zero trust, um, and that's essentially meaning you're not going to trust anything. And I think. Um, I think we have to have that same concept with, with email. Okay. Y- you, we need to evaluate and assess email the same way we do regular mail. Like, you know, everything we get in regular mail, we assume is somebody trying to market me or, or send me fake stuff. Uh, we need to do the same thing with, with email verify where it's coming from, who it's coming from. Is there a purpose or an intention? And if anything seems a little weird, uh, I used to say this to my staff, you know, call or ask us. There's zero, there's zero downside to picking up the call. And if you're in support, like there's zero downside of that teacher calling you and asking you, hey, is this, does this legit? Like this doesn't sound right. because it saves them embarrassment. And in reality, that's the whole social piece, right? Mm. So somebody gets fooled. The last thing you want to do is go to somebody and kind of admit or that you're embarrassed because you've done these things. Your company, whoever rings you up for information, is not going to object to you not giving it if they're the genuine article. I had YouTube, or not YouTube, uh, PayPal ring me up. Some strange transaction going on on my account and the guy at the other end of the phone says oh, can i have your email address and my my instant response was well hold on a minute if you're paypal you know my email address so you're going to have to figure out <laughs> another way to authenticate this conversation and he'd like the flash just went of course that's no problem at all log on to your account at a later date whenever suits you 
And in the messages, you'll see a message from us and we can pick up the conversation from there. And that to me, that was a nice experience. I went, okay, fair enough. So that goes back to that idea of that's a secondary method of authentication. So you have your password and now you have a second piece, a personal piece of, of a way to authenticate that. And, and that right there eliminates so much ambiguity that circles around just using a single password for stuff. Uh, also out there, um, knowing that almost everybody's data at some point or another has been taken or stolen or somehow or another leaked online, there are password, there are password checkers out there to where you could check to see if your email is out there and your password is out there. Um, I believe Google even has a free service that'll do it as part of their, their login. Google has that new facility now where they ring up their, their do you want to, yeah, I think it's on the browser. Um, it says your account, it's mm-hmm. kind of like, um, have you been pwned? That same idea, your account has been, or account that you have saved in the browser has been used to access or has been leaked, that kind of a notification. That's nice. And my instinct is, oh, burn the laptop. But no, no, just change the password. (laughs) Change the password. Here's the other little secret, is use a different password for things that are really, really important. Mm. Don't use the same password for like your bank that you're going to use for email or to set up uh, I don't know. A, a oh, hold on, hold, hold, hold on a minute now, Vince. Are you telling me that monkey socks one, two, three is a bad password <laughs> for everything? I, I would go with just password one, two, three, four, because oh, okay. it has to be 10 characters. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, Vince, I can't let you go. There, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. Um, keeping the cyber, keeping the cybersecurity parking it just for a second. So, one-to-one laptop projects. How, how? How? Tell us about some of the projects you're involved with. Sure. So, uh, from a laptop. So, the last two school divisions we've been in um, that that I've worked for one in Albemarle County, which is in Central Virginia. Uh, and one in Loudoun County, we have, uh, we determine in both of those that uh, every student has, every student needs the capability of being able to utilize today's technologies in order to further their learning environment. Uh, So what we've done in both of those is to figure out ways to be able to provide every student with what we call an individual learning device. And in in one case, it was a PC, a laptop. Uh, In another case, it was a Chromebook. So when I was in Albemarle, we deployed about, I don't know, 13,000 laptops, PCs to kids um, that that enabled them to have the the tools and the resources and the materials available uh, to really help them navigate the digital world. When up in Loudoun, uh, in the last school division I was in, that school system had, has about 86,000 kids. Uh, and during the pandemic, we, prior to the pandemic, we began the deployment. Because of the pandemic, we accelerated that. And we deployed uh, nearly 90,000 Chromebooks to students pre-K through 12th grade. So that way they could continue to progress uh, instructionally. Um, 
you know, kids, kids need the flexibility to be able to do that. Now that highlights some other needs that we have. So we, we talk about digital equity over here in the States. Does, do all kids have access to internet? Um, regardless of your, just in the same way we don't restrict, uh, you know, who has access to books, we shouldn't necessarily restrict who has access to digital resources and materials. So there's a big push to be able to make sure that kids especially those from low socioeconomic groups, have the ability to access the same resources, material, and content that more affluent people do. The numbers you mentioned, I'm finding it hard to comprehend. Okay, I, I can't. <laughs> I'll tell you why. And it's, it's purely, and I think anybody listening to this in a school who's going to deploy iPads or deploy Chromebooks, the numbers we're talking about is 200, 300, 400, 500. But they, like what my my brain hurts just thinking about the logistics yeah so for loudon we we purchased uh roughly twenty five thousand chromebooks and turned twenty five thousand chromebooks over every year um and how does that work is that a chromebook for everybody and it doesn't again the device doesn't matter where i'm neither for yep. or against it's, it's it's a device is a device how how does that work from the moment you go Okay, so that's 24,999 and 25,000. Tick. Do you put on another order for 25,000? And are they deployed to students as they come into you? Or how does it? Yeah, so, so great question. So we do, um, our schools essentially go, our primary schools are first through fifth grade. Then we have an intermediate school runs sixth through eighth, and then ninth through twelve. Um, there are high schools. So essentially, we put all, and I'll speak to Loudon. So Loudon, um, we have pre-K through pre-K, kindergarten, first grade, second grade. The devices will, will roll in at, the, at that grade level. We, we kind of work around, um, meaning we just recycle them. But a student comes in at third grade, they get a brand new, they get a brand new Chromebook, and that Chromebook stays with them for third grade, fourth grade, and fifth grade. Uh, the last couple of years, students have like last year, students didn't turn their Chromebooks in during the summer. They they just kept them all summer long in case they they were doing stuff. Mm. And then when they come to sixth grade, they get a brand new laptop. So they turn that old Chromebook in and they get a brand new, and that's their middle school learning device. And then that sticks with them for three years. And then when they enter high school, they get that brand new device again in ninth grade, and then it carries with them. And what we see is as kids kind of transition from uh, ninth grade to 12th grade, they start to either uh, branch off and utilize their own personal devices for more and more to where the, the school device is just kind of ancillary um, to where it's primary at elementary and middle school. The other big thing that we, <laughs> the other big thing is that we see is uh, there's a lot more broken stuff in middle school than there is in high school. That was going to be my next question. Talk to me about <laughs> the stuff that's broken. So, uh, you know, Kids, our middle school age ranges are like uh, essentially like, I don't know, 10 to 14, right? Um, so you end up handing this 10-year-old a device and you say, please don't, please take care of it. 
well, what do we know about that, that age group? Like (laughs) there aren't, you know, they're going to break stuff. And, and, Essentially, what they learn throughout middle school is that the more they break it, the more inconveniencing it is for them. So we see a lot of breakage in middle school, but by the time they get to high school, they've kind of figured it out. They figured out how to do, how to manage it and take care of it. Uh, and you really don't see that in the same level. But what we learned, kind of learning from my previous parts is Utilizing a Chromebook, you know, you're, you're using like a toaster because mm-hmm. if I break it, if a kid breaks it, I have the ability to turn around and give them another one. And since everything is stored in the cloud, the device, the they button. really become, they really become device, fully device agnostic. And they have the ability to quickly get back on, on track exactly where they were before they, you know, shot their Chromebook down the hallway. And, and yeah, yeah. Use, use it as a Frisbee, Vince. Use it as a Frisbee. That's <laughs> And we saw that to where the worst mistake a school bought is they bought like these little bags for kids to put their Chromebooks in. Yeah. And they they would take them and wind them up and then see them shooting down the hallway like uh, like shuffleboard pucks. Nice, nice. <laughs> I, I look at I would have been one of them students. I'm not going to lie. That's it. Um, and just as curious, um, who, who pay, how does that get paid for? The student, so Hassan takes the Chromebook, fires it down to a, 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 down a lane of pins made up of Chromebooks and knocks right. them out. Who, who pays for that? So we have, so, uh, so I'll, I'll, break that, I'll break that out versus intentional damage and okay. accidental damage. Uh, so accidental damage, the school division pays for that. So again, we 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 would subscribe to the warranty of the accidental and break the accidental and, and warranty coverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ended up being you know a nominal fee on top of what we were paying. But as part of our deployment, parents and students also sign an obligation form that says in the fact that you intentionally or um, what is the word we use, not, uh, or negligent. So if you intentionally or negligently damage a device, um, they pay for it. And again, okay. since it's a Chromebook, essentially you're paying for the full, full amount. And that Chromebook could be in the last two days of its life. But if I have to buy a brand new one to replace it, it, you're still paying the full amount because that's what the replacement cost is. And typically, um, you would, that only happens like once. That would only happen once. And the LTE wireless project, I have this highlighted. Is that (laughs) part and parcel of the one-to-one laptop project that just ties hand in hand with it? Where does that fit in? Because over here, to my mind, when I see LTE wireless project, I go, ooh, wireless for everybody. That's nice. I like that. Is that, so that's, is that the case? That is what we did. So okay. um, going back to it, uh, that, was, that happened when I was with Albemarle County, uh, which Albemarle County is about 760 square miles. Um, in, if you kind of think about it almost like a triangle, so right in the middle of it, 
uh, is what we call Charlottesville. And Charlottesville was like a suburban urban hub. And then as you went out in any direction, you drastically went from uh, rural suburban to a very thin layer of suburban to rural. Okay. Similar, right? Similar to, mm -hmm. to how you see there. Yeah. Um, and what we did is we, we got a spectrum. So spec 2.5 gigahertz spectrum that we then built out and deployed our own LTE network for the school division. So that way all that we had the ability to deploy internet capabilities anywhere in our 760, 768 square miles to ensure that all kids were connected. Sometimes we use that LTE as backhaul. So we went into some housing development, some low income housing areas to where we put big antennas on roofs and then lit up the, that park or that housing community with school Wi-Fi. So essentially, we just extended the school network five miles down the road uh, to where this housing community was. And it, whether a kid was sitting in third grade in, in seventh period math or they were sitting at home, they were connected to the same network. Um, that to we, me, that, that's, that's an amazing project. That's, it's a huge undertaking. I mean, where do you even start? So we started with some really smart folks that I had on staff. Uh, and uh, and we, we did a lot of research trying to figure out how to be able to do it. Um, and then from a cost perspective, uh, it wasn't drastically that much more than what we were saying we were spending for internal connections. So again, we looked then for partnerships, um, partnerships being how do we partner, how do schools partner with local government that may have vertical assets that we could mount antennas on. Uh, we looked for partners that were like management facilities of uh, the people that were managing the um, the housing community. So they had a community center. So they allowed us to mount antennas on the top of it to make sure that we had a, a solid connection. Uh, and it really started to just build out from a, uh, like a, a community project at that point, more than it was like a school division project because people wanted to be able to help other people. I would assume the next step, and I'd love to see it, the next step is taking that available infrastructure that's in place at the moment here in Ireland. And the reason I mention it is because I feel we don't talk enough about, we complain, but we don't talk enough about it. Like the infrastructure is there. We could really, it's, it's not that hard to flick a switch and turn that from wired to wireless, now giving everybody around the school or around well, the school area. And I think, uh, I think there are new technologies that are coming out that'll really help with that. Uh, so as we're seeing more micro cell deployments, um, the ability for, uh, you know, 5G is helping a lot with just the overall bandwidth throughput that we have the capability of doing it. I would say within the next five to six years, I, I think we're gonna see a lot more of it here in the States. And, and I would imagine globally because it brings wireline speeds to wireless customers. 
And, and that's the big thing we're fighting over here is uh, a lot of people have connectivity. They just don't have it at the speed that they want or the speed necessary to be able to have all services through it. And with the changing economy, it really becomes like a, it becomes by not having access to those big items, uh, those big speeds, like you really restrict your ability to get cable through it, information, marketing, and all the people that really want it, uh, want you to be able to be online so that way they can track you, they can market yeah, you, yeah. they can sell you. Uh, they're behind the scenes pushing also course, to be able to have that. So it, it should be a pretty exciting time over the next probably five years for the deployment, especially as kind of 5G starts to really ramp up uh, and some of this microcell kind of LTE, Wi-Fi, uh, they got weird names for them, but it's really and like extended Wi-Fi. That, that brings us full circle back to, so you go out and you deploy your Wi-Fi. Everybody has Wi-Fi. It's great day for the village. And now you need to secure it. So now you need could, to secure it. Yeah. So Hassan comes along, Hassan comes along. I have my laptop and I go, right. VPN, Tor browser, download the internet. <laughs> you know, those are, so, how, do you, how do you deal with that? So just know, um, <laughs> so as you can come on here to pitch products, but we actually have a product that does exactly that. Okay. Um, so know that the Tor network is specifically built by somebody and monitored by somebody. Yeah, um, it's monitored by a lot of somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the exit node number at the minute, but it is monitored by some interesting But folks. your your data isn't as safe on that Tor network as you think. Uh, but you're right. So VPN is, is really important. Trusted VPN is really important. Otherwise, you're just essentially making it, privatizing your information for someone else to steal. Um, and then, yeah, network opsification, the idea of that Tor Onion uh, is, is great because anything you can do to reduce or eliminate your digital footprint while you're on the network is ridiculously helpful. So okay. I think right now people should, everybody listening should have a, a private VPN that they're utilizing. And there's some really good ones out there. Just make sure you're using a trusted one if How do you know using... what's a trusted one? So straight away, because I can open up and I see them in school, like I'm walking around and you see, and like our own networks are, we have the, depending on the tier that you're on, you have the Snapchats blocked or the Facebook block. And as soon as you hear a Snapchat, or you, you can see over a shoulder, you know that they're on a VPN. Now, as the IT guy, I can't, I'm not going to stop them, but I am curious to know what VPN they're using. So I can either go server side and go, okay, <laughs> or, and, and like, how do, how do you, how do you know what's a trusted VPN? So you, you have to research them, but there are ones. So there's, um, uh, gosh, so there's like your Nord VPN mm -hmm. is probably one of the largest. Um, you also have uh, something no, like Surfshark. Okay. Um, so you would want to be able to go out and, and you would want to research them to make sure they're, they're legit. 
Hmm. Um, is this is this a legit company? The same way you wouldn't necessarily just buy, uh, take somebody's free car or free bicycle. Like you figure there's probably a catch to it. Hmm. So if you're if you're utilizing a free VPN, there's a catch, and that catch generally means you're essentially allowing them to steal your information because yeah. everything digital is a commodity. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, but you're talking to the, the teenager there is leaning against the wall doing this and they're not doing Snapchat anymore. Jesus, I'm showing my age like it's the, t- the, t- the TikTok now. So, <laughs> you know, it's funny what we're starting to see now is um, so on the dark web, the the most expensive most expensive piece is a, a, a user a user under the age of 18 who doesn't have a credit history okay and what we're starting to see now are kids that are starting to apply for driver's licenses who are finding who the dmv the department of motor vehicles is coming back mm-hmm. and saying we've already issued you a driver's license meaning people are stealing their identities and then selling them to other okay. people. And now they may or may not have followed these issues. Um, but so, yeah, we could probably talk for, for hours on it. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, I, I had a great time and I hope to, hope to be invited back to yeah. talk another time. Oh, you will. You will, for sure. Look, thank you very much. Take it easy. Awesome. Thanks, man. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.